There are uh, a couple organizations in the United States um, called the, uh, uh, the Daughters of the American Revolution and the Sons of the American Revolution. Maybe you've uh, heard of those or, or maybe are, are even a part of one of those. Um, they are uh, two groups which, uh, according to their own statements, they, they exist to promote um, patriotism, uh, to preserve American history and to promote uh, uh, education of our of our future generations, and and if you're not familiar with these groups, the the foundational requirement for inclusion in them is that you you uh, have to be able to trace your heritage directly back to someone of uh, either military or government service during the American Revolution. So you have to be able to trace it back to that. And, and as a result, um, uh, ancestry and, and lineage play a big part in those groups. And, and the larger of the two groups, the daughters of the American Revolution, uh, they have a massive genealogical library in Washington, D.C. Um, uh, from, from what I read, there's nearly a quarter million books and other items uh, to help a person search for their family history and lineage. Um, now, I, you know, full disclosure, I'm not a member of either group. Um, you probably could have guessed about the daughters of the American Revolution, but I'm not a member of the sons of the American Revolution either. Uh, but from the outside looking in, uh, it, it seems to me that, that both of those groups hope that when a person is able to link their heritage back to the founding of, of our country, the hope is that two things will happen. Uh, first, that ancestor who played a role in our country's revolution will be honored, that that ancestor will be respected for who they were, the work that they did during their life. So the first thing they hope is that that will happen. The second thing is that the person finding their place in that lineage will, will take up the mantle of their ancestor and, and continue, continue the work of promoting the good of our country. I think those are the two main things that they hope, that the person in history would be honored and that the current person would kind of step into that lineage. And it's really all predicated on the idea that, that being a son or a daughter of, uh, of a certain family or within a certain lineage can be a powerful thing. Which, uh, which speaks to a person's identity or a person's purpose in life. I mean, that, that's really the idea there, and the, these two groups will leverage that idea. And the reason I bring that up this morning is, uh, as we continue through Luke, we are going to finish up chapter 3 and start into chapter 4 this morning. And one of the things that we're going to see is the lineage of Jesus. And we're going to see how that informs us about his identity and his purpose. So kind of that principle that you see in the daughters and the sons of the American Revolution, I think there's maybe some hints of that as far as who Jesus is and what that means for his life as we study him. So, so if, you remember, if you remember from last week, we talked about uh, John the Baptist, and we talked about the, uh, the preparatory work that he did prior to the public ministry of Jesus. 
Um, John called people to a baptism of repentance. We were talking about that last week. Um, And in so doing, preparing the way for the Lord to come, preparing the way for the Messiah. Um, But when we left off last week, we left off with chapter 3, verse 20. When we left off, Luke told us how John was arrested by Herod and he was put in prison. Now, in the chronological order of events, that happened, John being arrested and put in prison, that happened later. It happened later in the ministry of Jesus. We're going to start with Jesus' baptism this morning, and we know from the other Gospels that it was John himself who baptized Jesus in the Jordan River. Now, John can't do that if he's in prison, as Luke told us in uh, verse 20. So when Luke tells us about John's imprisonment in verse 20, he's not doing so from a chronological standpoint. He's jumping out of order here, and he's He knows he's jumping out of order here, and he's doing it for a thematic purpose. The preparatory work of John has been completed, and in a way, it's time for him to kind of exit stage left, and that's what Luke is doing by telling us that John was arrested and put in prison. And as John exits stage left, that allows Jesus to appear center stage. And, and take his role as the main character of the story. John, uh, uh, excuse me, Luke wants John to fade into the background at this point, and he wants Jesus to come into the foreground. And so he's using this event that took place a little bit later on to facilitate that in his gospel. And in fact, when Luke uh, records Jesus' baptism, John isn't even mentioned in this account. If it weren't for the other gospels, we would have no idea that it was John who baptized Jesus. So look with me at Luke chapter 3, verse 21. Such a short account of Jesus' baptism. It's only two verses. It says, Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. It's interesting that Jesus' baptism is almost an afterthought in this this account, right? All the people were being baptized. Oh yeah, Jesus was baptized too. But this is what happened when he was baptized. Now, now, uh, a question that might come to mind is, why, why is Jesus baptized? Why does he need to be baptized? I mean, if John is proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, as Luke stated in in, uh, chapter 3 and verse 3, what's Jesus doing? I mean, we know from the Bible that uh, Jesus committed no sin. So why be baptized by John as he's calling people to repent of their sins? And, And I've actually read that some Christians through history have kind of been a bit embarrassed by this whole scene, Jesus being baptized by John. <clears throat> and it seems, that, it seems that the reason Jesus was baptized, it's not because he needed to repent. We know that's not the case, but, but because he was identifying himself with all those who were humbling, themse- humbling themselves before God in their baptisms, in their baptism of repentance. 
Jesus, Jesus' baptism, I would say, is uh, more akin to an act of solidarity. It's, it's not a need of uh, repentance or cleansing, but rather it's, it's identifying with everyone else, identifying with humanity. And, you know, I, as Luke kind of leads us more to focus on what happened at Jesus' baptism, that's what we're going to focus on today, not so much the purpose for his baptism, why Jesus was baptized, but what happened when he was. And, uh, you know, what happened is, and at the end of this account, we see the theme that's going to run through all three passages that we look at this morning. And, and that theme is sonship. The sonship of Jesus. So as Jesus was baptized, the Holy Spirit descends on him like a dove. And then a voice from God the Father from heaven speaks and says, you are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. You are my beloved son. With you, I'm well pleased. And kind of just a short theological tangent here. The term Trinity doesn't appear in the Bible. You know, we talk about the theology of the Trinity of God, the triune God. That term does not appear in scripture. The term doesn't but the concept of the Trinity does. And this is, is one of the really clear examples of it. You have Jesus, the Son of God, dripping wet from being in the Jordan River, being baptized. You have the Holy Spirit descending upon Jesus. And you also have God the Father speaking from heaven. So all three persons of the Trinity clearly distinguished in this scene. We're not given the term Trinity, but we see it here. And those words that the Father spoke, those words of identity, are a declaration that this Jesus of Nazareth is indeed the divine Son of God. And, and we talked a couple weeks ago about how uh, Luke chapters 1 and 2, this, the story of Jesus' birth, that uh, Luke highlighted both the divinity and the humanity of Jesus. And we really saw the divinity in statements made about Jesus by Elizabeth and Zechariah and the angels and Simeon and Anna. All of the statements that they made were statements of divine identity. These words from God the Father are kind of the definitive agreement added to all those other statements that were made in Luke chapters 1 and 2. So, so maybe a person could, in some way, write off all of those other statements that were made by all those other people. But it seems like it would be much tougher to ignore the words of God the Father himself, speaking from heaven, saying, you are my beloved son. Jesus is the beloved divine son of God, and the Father is pleased with him. Uh, you know, I, I think the reason that John fades into the background at this point is so that we can focus squarely on the main character. And it's revealed to us, he is revealed to us here, the Son of God. Now, I, I will be the first to admit that the reality of Jesus being both fully divine and fully human makes me hurt here <laughs> in my brain. Intellectually, that is, a, that is a deep, difficult 
concept to wrap my mind around. And, and, and uh, I was at a breakfast with some pastors the other week, and we were discussing some of the questions that we have just, just surrounding this, uh, this reality. It stretches my mind. It stretches my heart in a way that can sometimes feel uncomfortable because I, I just have to come to the place. It's like I, I just don't know how. I can't logically explain how that works, that Jesus is both fully divine and fully human. But when I go to a passage like this one, I'm confronted with the indisputable words of God the Father, saying over Jesus, you are my beloved son. And, and those words were not spoken in secret. Everybody was there. Everybody that was being baptized by John, they heard these words. Luke recorded them for us in his gospel so that we can hear them as well. And even though I might not intellectually understand in its fullness how Jesus can be the divine Son of God, I can accept these words by faith. I can say, you know what, God spoke them over Jesus, and I can have faith that they are true. And, you know, I can allow my faith in God's statement to lead me to a place of maybe some more intellectual understanding. And, and I would just encourage all of us, uh, if you ever have or, or, or currently do find yourself in kind of a similar place, struggling to make sense of Jesus' divinity or, or anything else that's revealed in Scripture, then, then I would encourage us to exercise faith in our Almighty God by accepting His words, even without having a complete and total understanding of them. I mean, me and my, my, how my brain works, I would like to get to that place first, knowing how it works, and then I can put my faith in it. But man, I, I think what we discover is that there's times where faith leads to understanding rather than understanding leading to faith, that God works in that way quite often, not just in, in biblical history, but in our lives as well. When we are confronted with who God is and what God has said, we say, God, man, I don't fully understand that, but I'm gonna put my faith in it. And that there can at times be understanding that comes afterwards. It's not a blind faith. It's not a irrational faith. It's a faith in the almighty, all-knowing God. And that he can take us then, sometimes, to a place of greater understanding. Sometimes we don't. And this may be one of those where we're never going to be there fully. We're never going to fully understand how that works. But we can have faith that it's true. So that's Jesus' baptism. It's a scene that, that conveyed the identity of Jesus as the divine Son of God. Luke now pushes pause on the narrative and he inserts some genealogy about Jesus, right? The, the most exciting parts of the Bible, right? The lists of names, the genealogies. And I'm not gonna read the entire genealogy to you this morning because I think our time can be better spent than listening to me try to pronounce all the different names. But I do want to draw our attention to the beginning and the end, because I think those are, are really what is, what is crucial in Luke's inclusion of the genealogy here. So look with me at the beginning of it, uh, chapter 3, verse 23. So he starts with Jesus, and he says, Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph, the son of Heli. And of course, he goes on and on and keeps listing the lineage. 
Now, two things that, that I think speak to the humanity of Jesus here. So we've just been confronted with his divinity, God saying, you are my beloved son. Here we are confronted with his humanity. First, Jesus began his ministry at about age 30. Which is, okay, that's kind of an interesting tidbit. But when you think about that, it references the fact that Jesus, just like all of us, was born and from that point, he began counting his age, all right? So that he is human. We can say that Jesus began his ministry at age 30 because it had been 30 years since his birth. We see the humanness of Jesus. And then second, Jesus was the son of Joseph. Now, now we know that the, the Virgin Mary's conception was, was miraculous, and we know it was brought about by the work of the Holy Spirit within her. But as a human being, Jesus was still raised as the son of Joseph, and so his human lineage can be traced back through Joseph. And that's what Luke does here. He, he gives a record of that lineage, and he traces it all the way back through human history, and then listen to how it ends in verse 38 of chapter 3. So he goes all the way through, and, it, and then it says, The son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. You know, when we, when we talked about uh, Luke the person in, in the opening uh, sermon of this series, uh, I said that Luke and Paul were really close. Luke was a traveling companion with Paul. He, he, he was a friend of Paul. He was a fellow worker with Paul. Luke was probably the only one with Paul at the, at the end of his life as he was in prison. And what we have at the end of this genealogy of Jesus is another indication that Luke and Paul were very close. And, and not just relationally, but here it seems that Paul's theology influenced Luke as well. A hallmark of Pauline theology in his letters is his references to Jesus as the second Adam. That's very much a Pauline statement. Jesus is the second Adam. Uh, Romans chapter 5 especially, you see that. Now Luke doesn't use that phrase here. And, and he doesn't even link Jesus to Adam theologically in an overt way. But he does link Jesus to Adam in a familial sense. He says, here's his lineage going all the way back to Adam. You know, just like the, the daughters of the American Revolution or the sons of the American Revolution can, can trace their bloodline all the way back to those early patriots of our country, Jesus' bloodline can be traced all the way back to the very first human, Adam. And, and, and that's what Luke is doing for us here. Now, to be fair, there's nothing special about that, right? There's nothing special about Jesus being able to trace his lineage all the way back to Adam. Every one of us in here, if we had the, the necessary documents and records, we could do that. Isn't that crazy to think about? We could trace our lineage all the way back to the very first human being. There's nothing special about Jesus in that regard. But that's exactly the point, I think. That's exactly the point when we talk about the humanity of Jesus. While Jesus stands alone at his baptism as the divine son of God, 
He stands shoulder to shoulder with every one of us as human sons or daughters of Adam. So there's something uniquely special about Jesus' divinity, but there is something entirely normal about Jesus' humanity. And that's what Luke is, is writing to us here. Right? So it, it might be tempting to think that a list of names in the Bible doesn't provide a whole lot in terms of, of spiritual food for us. And I know I'm tempted to think that way when I come to different genealogies in the Bible. But they are all included for a reason. And, and once we discover the reason for this one, why Luke includes Jesus, linking him to Adam, man, the list of names becomes very important. We see that Jesus is not just the divine Son of God, but that he is also fully human, just like every one of us, being able to trace our, our line back to Adam. And what also stands out to me in this is that Luke doesn't stop with Adam. He could, I mean, he could have ended this section by stating that Jesus, you know, all the way back was the son of Adam. And had he done so, the goal of linking Jesus to Adam would have been accomplished. But he takes it one step further, doesn't he? Because he, he ends the, the lineage by saying the son of God, son of Adam, the son of God. There's a sense in which Adam, created at the command of God and, and breathed into by God, is a son of God. Not in a divine sense, but in a what it means to be human sense. Adam is a son of God. And, and that final phrase in this genealogy ties this passage in with the one before it and the one after it. Because at the end of the baptism, what do we hear? Jesus, uh, God the Father speaking over Jesus, you are my beloved son. Son of God. What does the genealogy end with? Jesus is the son of God. One is in a divine sense. This one is in the human sense. Jesus was God the Father's beloved son. and He's also a son of God just like us because his bloodline can be traced all the way back to Adam all the way back to creation of Adam in the Garden of Eden. So in other words, Jesus is shown to be both divine and human son of God. It's why Luke kind of pushes pause on the narrative and inserts the genealogy here. Matthew has it right up front in his gospel. Chapter one, first thing you read, genealogy. Luke waits till here, and he does that for a reason, so that we can see this identity of Jesus. And once he's done that, he unpauses the narrative and it picks back up again. So if we see at the beginning of chapter four, Jesus departs from his baptism and immediately he goes into the wilderness. And so look with me at Luke chapter four, verse one, it says, and Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness for 40 days being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. Now we gotta stop right there. That has to be the most understated uh, uh, remark in the Bible, right? After not eating for 40 days, Jesus was hungry. Yep. I mean, there are some incredibly complex theological statements in the Bible. That's not one of them. 
Jesus hadn't eaten for 40 days. He was hungry. It's not super deep. But yet at the same time, it's another powerful declaration that Jesus is indeed fully human. You and I don't eat for 40 days. We're going to be hungry. If we don't eat for 40 minutes, we might be hungry. Jesus, just like anyone, was hungry after not eating for 40 days. And if that wasn't difficult enough to go 40 days without food, Jesus was also dealing with temptation from Satan throughout that time. Verse 2 tells us that for 40 days, Jesus was being tempted, not just at the very end like we might sometimes picture it. It was throughout this time in the wilderness. But there does seem to be a climax to the temptation, which John record, or excuse me, which Luke records for us here in his gospel. So, so let's pick it up in verse three as we see these final temptations. The devil said to him, if you are the son of God, command this stone to become bread. Jesus answered him, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, to you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been given to, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, He will command His angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. So did you see the link in that passage back to the two passages we've just looked at, baptism and genealogy? Baptism, what's the point that Luke gives us? Jesus is the Son of God. Genealogy, what's the point that Luke wants us to see? Jesus is the Son of God. What does Satan say when he's talking to Jesus? If you are the Son of God. Now, Satan's not questioning that fact. Jesus knows he's the Son of God. Satan knows he's the Son of God. So he's not, he's not drawing into question the reality. Rather, he's tempting Jesus to leverage his position as the divine Son of God to, to override or, or to diminish his position as human Son of God. Jesus, in his humanity, was experiencing hunger at that moment. Uh, Jesus, in his humanity, did not possess the glory of the kingdoms of the world in that moment. Jesus, in his humanity, would have been in danger if he was thrown from the pinnacle of the temple in that moment. And so Satan tempted Jesus to address all three of those things in a way which would, would utilize his divinity to supplement his humanity. If that makes sense, to kind of not be quite fully human. Take the easy way out might, might be a way to phrase it. Using his divinity in that way would have allowed Jesus to shortcut what it meant to be fully human, 
All three of those would have, would have shortcut that. And of course, had he chosen to do so, he would have ceased being able to identify with humanity and also destroyed his perfect relationship with his heavenly father. Uh, think about it. What, what would we make of Jesus' human sonship if he had turned those stones to bread in order to escape the, the hunger pain that he was feeling? I mean, how could you and I pray to a Jesus who in the face of temptation and struggle took the easy way out, played the divine card and said, well, I'll, I'll just, I'll fix that for myself. I mean, how would we be able to pray, pray to Jesus? I mean, what, what would he possibly have to offer us if he had done that? Or we can think about it the other way. Uh, you know, how, what would we make of, of Jesus' divine sonship if he had turned his back on God the Father and God the Holy Spirit and, and gone his own way in seeking the glory and the honor for himself? I mean, how could, how could you and I look to a Jesus who in the face of temptation chose disobedience to God the Father instead of loving obedience? I, I mean, how could he then offer himself as, as a perfect sacrifice on the cross? in order to redeem you and I. I mean, had Jesus done that, it, it, it would have destroyed both, both aspects of his sonship, divine sonship and human sonship, both. But he didn't, right? We, we, we see in the, the account here that Jesus emerged from those 40 days of temptation in the wilderness with both identities intact still fully divine son of God, still fully human son of God. And here's what this means practically for you and I today. Regarding Jesus being the human son of Adam, son of God, he knows what you and I need. He knows what we need. Uh, in the words of uh, the writer of Hebrews, Jesus is not unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. Instead, Jesus was tempted in every respect as we are, yet was without sin. So he knows what we need. He knows uh, our struggles at work, our struggles at school, our struggles at home, our struggles at church, our struggles within ourselves. He knows what we need. He knows. Now, we might, we might look at the temptation of Jesus and say, well, he emerged victorious from those temptations because he was, he was God, of course. I mean, he's fully divine. Of course he was going to come through those temptations. But, but when we really listen to what the gospel writers are telling us, it wasn't his divinity. Jesus did not rely on his divine power in the face of those struggles. And so that's why he can sympathize with us, and that's why he can relate to us, and he does know exactly what we need. Because in his humanity, the argument can be made that Jesus faced temptation to an even greater degree than we ever do. Because we usually give in at some point. We'll face temptation up to that point, and then there might be some failure there. Jesus faced it all the way through. It never went away because he gave in to it. 
So, so the, the victory of Jesus in the face of temptation, I would say, as we, as we see here, it's attributed to two things. As a human, he was filled with the Holy Spirit, and as human, he knew and he stood firm upon the words of God. And that's what we see in the, in the passage. He's filled with the Holy Spirit. He stood firm on God's word. And, and Jesus knows that we, also being human beings, we need those same two things in our struggles with temptation. He personally knows what it is to need the empowerment and guidance of the Holy Spirit and the Word of God. And he knows that we need that as well. And, and so the next time we find ourselves in the heat of temptation and struggle, we can be confident that Jesus has felt that fire from the furnace and he knows. He knows what we need to persevere. Now that's one thing, knowing what we need. In his humanity, Jesus knows what, he need, what we need. But in addition to that, Jesus in his divinity can provide us with what we need. If he knew and couldn't provide it, that's not really much benefit to us. But he knows and he can provide. In, in John chapters 14 through 16, uh, before Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection and ascension, Jesus promised that he would send the Holy Spirit to be with his followers. He promised them that. And then Luke himself went on to record in the book of Acts, chapter 2, the dramatic first giving of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit coming upon God's people. The same Holy Spirit that came upon Jesus at his baptism and the same Holy Spirit that filled Jesus as he entered the wilderness to be tempted, it's the same Holy Spirit who dwells within God's people today. Exact same Spirit. And that same Spirit illuminates the Word of God today as we read it and as we ponder it. So we are equipped by Jesus and we are equipped in the same way as he was when he faced temptation from Satan. Uh, you know, Paul, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 10 that God's not gonna let us be tempted beyond our ability. You know, that, that's the further promise that what we need in the face of temptation is available to us. So Jesus, in his humanity, he can relate to our struggles. He knows what we need. And Jesus, in his divinity, can equip us with all that we need in the face of those struggles. And no one else can do that. No one else can perfectly do both of those things. It's only a, a perfect, fully human, fully divine Jesus who's able to do that. So Luke presents Jesus to us in that way and then shows us that that's a not just a wonderful reality in general, that that's a wonderful reality for us when we think about it. And that's a wonderful reality because every one of us is going to face temptation sometime this coming week. I can be pretty, pretty confident in that. May happen yet today. Might happen within the hour that we're going to face temptation of some kind. When we do, when we're faced with that temptation, Let's remember both aspects of the sonship of Jesus. As a human son of God, let's picture Jesus right there with us in that temptation, 
fully aware of what we are facing. And then as the divine Son of God, let's picture Jesus right there with us, filling us with the Spirit, guiding us through his words given to us in Scripture. Both are so important as we face temptation, and both are the reality given to us. It's a truly wonderful thing. Again, I would love to be able to explain to you all the logistical details of how that works, but I can't. I just have faith in it. I have faith that that is who Jesus is. It's presented by Luke in that way, and as I have faith in that, I, I allow it to, to be the reality in my life, if I can phrase it that way. And so I would encourage us all in that to step out in faith in how Jesus is presented to us, accepting him as he is. Let's stand together. Let's, let's give praise to God that when that temptation comes, again, maybe within the hour, that we have all that we need. It's given to us. Father, we come to you. Um, we give you praise. We worship you because of who you are. I thank you for, for how you inspired Luke to, to present Jesus' identity to us. Uh, I'm just in awe of how these things are woven together and, 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 and not just uh, in, a way, in the way that they're presented to us, but, but in the way that they impact us. They impact how we live and, and how we see ourselves in you. So we give you praise that you know that whatever it is that we're facing, whatever temptation struggles before us, you know what we need. There's comfort in that. I find rest in that. I thank you for that reality. And I also thank you that you give every one of us exactly what we need. You don't just relate to us. You don't just sympathize with us. You empower us. You fill us with your presence. You give us wisdom through your word. And as you showed, that's what we need when we face temptation. So God, I ask that you would continue to do that throughout this week, that we would look to you in those times of, of tempting and struggle. I thank you that you love us enough to do that for us, to provide that for us. God, and so it's for that reason that we continue our worship of you, that we sing more songs in, in adoration of who you are. We pray all this in your name. Amen.